Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Knut Peterson is the name. Uh, thanks very much, Brian. I actually haven't eaten yet, but I wanted to get uh, my question in. Uh, we had Sergio Pellas here a few years ago talking about uh, rough and tumble play. I think it's a really, really important topic, and uh, you related to it as well. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about that uh, in, the, in this day of age where people's uh, exercise come in form of, uh, of playing around with the uh, basically finger exercise? Yeah, um, I can say a couple things. Um, we had some discussion at the table here. Um, one of the things that we've discovered, not we personally, but the field has discovered, is that um, having passive experiences, such as sitting in front of a television, doesn't do anything. Having passive experiences, it, um, such as listening to people talk, if you're not actually interacting with them, doesn't do anything. And so um, we, we know that there has to be an interaction one-on-one. -on -one. We also know that playing computer games has benefits, but those benefits are different benefits than playing um, free, free play. So what's going on in free play? There's a social interaction. There's somebody there. You're looking at them. You're touching them. Uh, there's usually more than one somebody. There's others as well. So you have to sort of figure out the rules of the games that you're going to play with these people. Um, and it's, it's not passive. It's interactive. Um, if you look at video games, it's not passive either, but it's, it's a, a spatial thing. So kids who spend all their time playing video games may have better spatial skills at things like video games, but it doesn't uh, tran transfer very well um, to spatial skills in the real world. Whereas the uh, act of play has implications uh, for math, implications for uh, English and so on. So it turns out that educate, uh, sorry, that, that um, exercise is one of the profound uh, experiences that we have. The best experience that you can have to forestall the effects of aging is exercise. So it affects blood flow in the brain, it affects uh, operation, therefore, of the brain, and so it's no surprise that it's also affecting how the brain develops. So the exercise component is, is really important. That isn't the best answer. Serge would give a far better answer, but that's what I'm going to give you. <coughs> Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you, Brian. You know, when I started in psychology a million years ago, 1963, okay. <laughs> can't remember, um, we knew that there was an interaction between the genetics and the environment. And um, now, all these years later, through the neuropsych, we've been able to find out exactly what that is. So thank you. Thank you very much for your research. The research at the Behavioral Center for Neuroscience is so important. I wonder how the cuts are going to affect you. Could you explain that in terms of research grants? And are you still able to get the grants? Or do you need, need to have some funding from the university level in order to get the grants? In other words, what for the grad students and so on, do you have any idea how this funding will impact well, you? The, the short answer you? is no. <coughs> Neither does he. Um, but the bigger answer really is there are two levels of funding here. So there's federal funding, and the federal funding is going down for research, for the kind of research we do, because they're looking for more applied research. 
And that's true of the Alberta government too. They're interested in applied research. The research that we're, we're doing is research that is, for want of a better word, curiosity driven. Nobody told me that I had to study how the brain is changed by experience. We just discovered this all by accident. And there's lots of accidental findings along the way, as you well know. Um, <coughs> I think you worked over there too. Um, so the funding is going down and <coughs> I, I think that the morale of the young scientists isn't as good as it once was for sure. In terms of how it's going to affect our courses and so on, I don't think it'll have a big impact on us, but I'm hoping that's true. Um, so some of us may le leave sooner um, than we might have. But it's really hard to say. I mean, it's if you think about it, it's a million dollars a month that the university has to find. That's 100 jobs. So they got to be found somewhere. But I think in terms of our graduate students, we're still getting lots of students applying, coming from all over the world. As long as the funding uh, for scholarships and so on is still there, and that's all pretty much all federal, uh, we'll be okay. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone here supports the University of Lethbridge and um, supports, calls their MLAs and lets them know that <coughs> we, do not, we do not appreciate this 10% cut. Thank you. Ryan, thank you for a wonderful presentation. My name is Larry Alford. Do you have any comments on the uh, value of a SPECT scan in um, use for diagnosing um, practical applications? Is, it, is the medical imaging technology of any value or is it still fly by night? And fluoride and its effects on the brain. Any comment on that, if you may? I don't have any comments on fluoride and its effects on the brain. I don't think we know anything. I don't know anything about it. Um, SPECT, for those who don't know, is a poor man's version of what's called PET, which is positron emission tomography, and allows us, we don't have one, allows people who have one to look at um, the way the chemistry of the brain is changing with experiences and online and so on. SPECT is a, a poor man's version, but it's actually quite good. Uh, there isn't a SPECT in town either, uh, but it's much cheaper. To, to run a PET, you need a cyclotron. So basically in a PET, what you do is you feed the subject radioactive Kool-Aid, Tell them it's not going to hurt them, um, and it won't. Um, and then you have them do things, and so the parts of the brain that are doing the stuff get more blood, and therefore they're more radioactive. So you can have their head basically in a Geiger counter, and you can see which parts of the brain are getting blood. Uh, you can do it in an MRI, something called functional magnetic resonance imaging, and we can do that at the university. Uh, and what you're doing there is you're looking for where iron is in the brain because blood has iron and so it's the same logic. Places that are active. So, you know, there's this idea that people have you only use 10% of your brain, which of course is stupid. Um, but in fact, at any given instant, that's true because you couldn't possibly do everything at once. So as I'm talking, I'm not smelling stuff. Uh, I'm not uh, playing a musical instrument. I'm talking. So the blood is being shunted to regions of my brain over here and not to other places. So you can only do one or two things the most of the time. So looking for where the iron is, looking for where the radioactive stuff is, um, is a way of looking in the brain. So the, the long answer, the short answer is that SPECT is something good. There are other things that we can do though, and we're doing them over there, uh, measuring electrical activity with what's called event-related potentials, which probably um, is, is much cheaper and might be more sensible economically than, than SPECT. But certainly SPECT is not fly by night. 
Mary Shillington, uh, thank you, Brian, for your talk. I heard, I've heard you before as a clinical social worker, uh, uh, presentations you've made. Um, uh, two things. I'm involved with L'Arche Lethbridge, and uh, there's a petition out on the table out there for those of us who are concerned about the devel uh, uh, developmental cuts, the PDD cuts to uh, people with adults with disabilities. Um, and so sign it if you're concerned. Um, so our people, our L'Arche core members, are all dis uh, disabled in some way, mentally, uh, and physically often. Uh, what, what has happened to their brain, uh, and how does it continue to change or develop, or does it? It does. So the, the, the short answer here is your brain continues to change in a good way, or can, till you stop breathing. Um, now, obviously, people who are suffering from dementia, there's a lot of stuff going on that's not so good. Um, but even uh, there's some uh, really interesting cases of people who, when their brains were looked at post-mortem, um, had severe Alzheimer's-like brains, didn't show it. The reason they didn't show it is because they were so mentally active. Uh, so people like professors and conductors are two good examples um, who seem to be able to hide the effects. So we know that for virtually all brain problems, there are therapies we can use, and a different hat I have on is to look at stroke therapies ways in which we can improve recovery um, from stroke. And basically, the short answer on that is we don't know squat about it at, um, at this point. But we do know it's possible. And so what happened to people with um, in, in your client group, and there are going to be developmental injuries, a lot of them, developmental problems, uh, they're still, some of them are, are clearly remediable to some extent. Mm -hmm. We're just learning how to do that. So all, I think in 10 years, we'll have a far better idea as to how to get in early and how to make a bigger difference to these people. But it's, it, it, they're not dead. And that's why the cuts to them are, are that West worse, because sure. then the, the, the opportunities <coughs> they get are not there. Yep. So thank you. I'm Mark Gettle. In his book, uh, The, Last, uh, the Lost, Last Child in the Woods, uh, Richard Louv points out how important it is for children to be exposed to nature. And he claims that children that are exposed to nature will uh, get diseases that he called uh, nature deficit disorder. So I'm just wondering how much research has been done to that in that in that the importance of having our children get to know nature and, and exposed to nature, and then what can result from that? Well, the, there hasn't been much research, but there is research going on now, uh, looking at the effects of being exposed to things other than cities. We were talking about this at lunch at the table as well. So yes, there there is uh, uh, stuff going on. And part of it is, is not just nature, but it's part of the understanding of, of ecology and the recognition of, of how things relate one to another. I live on a farm most of the time, and so I'm sometimes too close to nature, um, but <laughs> especially when bears come through. Um, but it, nonetheless, uh, I, I think that one of the things that protects me from uh, my other job across the, the uh, river is being able to be out there, and it, it's just, you know. But has this really been studied? No, but it is being studied, especially with kids. Yeah. Not the best answer, but it's, you know, one of the things that's happened is because we've begun to understand so much about the brain, the number of questions you can ask is just huge. It should be a great career for, for people forever. Uh, it's been good for me, but it, it makes us feel pretty ignorant. Uh, thank you, Brian, for being with us today, uh, spending your valuable time with us. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Um, you, you referred to the 
the matter of stress as it affects the development of the brain, especially during the early years. Uh, it seems to me uh, that it's common sense now that with the rapid change that's happening in society, where with this technological age where things are changing so rapidly, that uh, p uh, people are being stressed more and more. I see that with the uh, economically, with the uh, ups and downs, uh, the yo-yo effect in the stock markets and all around the world. So with that, without any study, but with just common sense, it seems that stress is increasing for people. Uh, do you th see a relationship between the rapidity of change within society in general and the level of stress and the effect that it will have on young people, developing people? That's a difficult question. Uh, what we've been able to show is that stress, either prenatally or in adulthood, produces epigenetic changes. We, we know that's true. We've compared it to the effects of drugs like amphetamine, and it's similar in terms of the epigenetic changes in the brain. Um, whether the rapid change in society uh, is a huge stressor or not is, is an open question, but if you think about it, our brains were designed to live in a rather different world than we're living in now. And so uh, the brain is trying to figure all of this out, right? And I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to hear our guest speaker for the Brendan Milner Lecture last week. Um, he's from Brazil, and his talk was mind-boggling. He's on his way to Stockholm. It was just amazing. The, the sort of things he was showing was that our conceptions as to how the brain is working are wrong. And the way in which stress, for example, is affecting brain organization uh, is different than we thought. And so I think the change uh, in the next two or three years, in part because of his stuff, is going to be really uh, outstanding. And I want to tell you a little story. This guy, um, the president of Brazil, called him in. He, he's a science consultant for the, for the president of Brazil. And said, FIFA is having the World Cup. And the kickoff is usually by some dignitary. But Brazil is on the way up, and science is our thing. So what can we do to impress the world? I want you to think about it. And he said, I know the answer. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to have a person come in in a wheelchair who's paralyzed and they're going to kick the ball. They're going to get up and walk to the ball and kick it. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to construct an exoskeleton, and they're going to use their brain, their thoughts, to move that skeleton and have this person kick the ball. And he showed us a video of somebody doing that. And, and when he said that to, uh, to her, she said, I don't care how many billions of dollars this costs, we'll pay for it. And so uh, that's the kind of attitude we need in terms of understanding these problems. But his his... Uh, story, you actually just thinking about stuff, just imagining you're playing squash. Um, you can actually take that brain activity, imagine you're playing squash or tennis, whatever, feed it to a computer, and then the computer uh, fire it back to you and actually have your body move in response to that. He had um, a monkey in uh, Durham, North Carolina, running a, a robot, a humanoid robot that didn't have a brain in Tokyo, in real time. In fact, the uh, um, video link, or the uh, email electronic link, was faster from the monkey's computer brain to Tokyo than the monkey to its own legs. It was 20 milliseconds ahead. And you could see this uh, robot walking across the room like this, exactly the way the monkey was walking across the room, just having the monkey think about it. And the monkey didn't even have to move. The monkey just had to stand there, and it was getting rewarded for this. 
So when you, when you see this kind of stuff, uh, then you begin to realize, whoa, the, the things that are going to happen in the next while are amazing. We'll be able to answer that question. So wait for the FIFA thing. You'll see it. Edward Thomas, uh, thank you for your presentation, although sometimes it's mind-boggling to me. I have a much simpler question. With all the information coming to us through the internet, Twitter and Facebook, I see people talking to each other on Facebook sitting next to each other. Can we overload the brain so that we don't have time to think for ourselves anymore because everybody tells us what to do and what not to do and what they're doing. Do we have time to think? Or is the brain overloaded? Well, the brain probably is overloaded, but what's happening is that, so this thing, I don't have a cell phone, believe it or not, so I'll have to use my computer. This computer becomes an extension of my brain. So it actually, when I'm using it, it's part of my brain now. And so what we're doing is we're enlarging our brains by some of these uh, devices that we use. Once again, I don't have a cell phone, so I don't do Twitter and all these things. I'm not so sure that that is an extension of the brain that's going to be helpful. Um, but some of it is. My name is Tad Mitsui. Thank you very much for coming. Heard a lot about you. My question is about uh, effect of uh, contact sports, concussions, etc. Thank you. That's a whole other talk. Uh, I gave a talk last year at the university on concussions. Um, I'm not sure what you want to know. So the bottom line is don't have one. And the next thing is don't have two. Um, because two is way worse than one and the effects start to multiply. Uh, concussion is related to aging. So there's a hypothesis that uh, concussions will stimulate the factors that are related to the to aging in the brain. Uh, the uh, concussion produces things in the brain that we see in Alzheimer's brains and so on. So it's a whole, to try and answer the question in, in 30 seconds is not easy, but the, the basic idea here is it's a closed system. You've got, if I hit myself in the arm, I'll get a bruise, but uh, the bruise is right there. If I hit my head on the floor, it's inside this. And so it's going to bang around in there, and we're going to have bruises all over the place. Not only that, the brain has um, several hundred million connections, and those connections are often long fibers. And when you um, get the brain in there going back and forth, these connections can be severed. And so one of the reasons if you take a person and stick them in an MRI and you've had a concussion, you can't see anything. The reason you can't see anything is the MRI isn't looking for severed connections. You can't see them. You have to use special uh, MRI procedures, one called MRS, which we don't do here, although it could be done here. Uh, MRS will show this. But so when you look at the brain of someone who's been concussed, you don't really see anything unless they've got a contusion, unless it's just bleeding. Uh, and so at first people thought, well, it's not all that important, but we now know it's hugely important. We did one study years ago in which we recruited graduate students at Dalhousie before we had graduate students here. We had a postdoc who wanted to go to Dalhousie for the summer because he had come from there. And I said, fine. And so we got students who'd had concussions, graduate students, all PhD students, and gave them a battery of tests. And one of the tests required them to, under a screen, feel objects with one hand and then identify the object out of a group on the other hand. These were unnameable objects. And it turns out people who'd had concussions couldn't do it. They didn't know they couldn't do this. And of course, we had to um, discuss this with them afterwards and say, don't worry, you're a PhD student. Obviously, you're really bright. But by the way, 
you shouldn't have smacked your head. Um, and so, you know, here's an interesting statistic. What is the most dangerous thing per hour of doing it? Sports that we do. And the answer I'll give to you right now is riding a horse. Um, and you say, oh, also it must be 16-year-old girls who are falling off their horse. It's not. It's 55-year-old men. And why is that? My horse was broke. I didn't need a helmet. Uh, is he in Wishaw listening? <laughs> he refuses to wear a helmet on his horse. Anyway, um, it turns out that we do a lot of stupid things thinking that, you know, we're in control. So wearing helmets is, is a good thing to be doing. Hi, Brian. I'm Henning Mundell. Um, for the initial part, I just want to maybe phrase for you in a bit more positive way when you made the comment that it was luck or something that you got involved in this direction of figuring out what the brain does and how it does it. Um, as a retired, which you aren't, but agricultural scientist um, and a plant breeder, I came up with the term that one of the things that we do in our case, in selecting the appropriate lines which will make the best varieties afterwards, is optimizing serendipity. And I think you have done a lot of that. And maybe that's a more positive way to sell for granting agencies about what you're about to. Well, <laughs> but th you. that is just sort of <laughs> the aside. Okay. Uh, my, my question relates more to an um, answer you recently gave and I don't know to what extent it was tongue-in-cheek with uh, increasing the size of your brain, uh, yep. throwing your computer. Okay, um, now the flip side is, to what extent does the physical size of our brain facilitate our ability to greater heights of thought? Well, across species, it's clearly related, right? So if you compare our brain, the difference between our brain and a chimp's brain is bigger than the difference between a chimp's brain and a mouse's brain. And that's a stunning statistic. Our, our brain is really unique. And so across species, it's a huge thing. Within a species, within this room, there's a huge variation in brain size, and there's zero correlation between that and uh, cognitive functioning. Here's a statistic that my wife likes to poke fun at, but if you look at the brains of men and women, men have bigger brains than women. And her point is, and I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> Even, even corrected for body size, men's brains are bigger than women's brains, but it's obvious they don't work the same, and women are a lot better at men at, at a whole bunch of things. So within a species, there's very little relation. Obviously, if you're born with some sort of serious um, developmental disorder, that's a different issue. But, uh, Um, Crystal Frank, um, I had a question about something you mentioned in your talk. You were saying that you spoke to an Aboriginal man once, and you were talking about generational effects of um, residential school, and you had some ideas on how that could be approached. I was just curious if you could expand on that. Sure. My, my husband's from the reserve, and um, we work with a lot of Aboriginal people, and I've seen that myself, and you see it in yeah. your kids, and it was just something I've always... So one of the most... Sorry, it wasn't... It was... There was more than one. It was uh, when I was in Lac-la-Biche, and there were half the audience was was uh, natives, um, and one elder was the one who asked the question. But what you have to do is to say, okay, what factors have the biggest influence on brain development in a positive way? And the factor that we found to have the biggest influence is tactile stimulation. So the skin gives us a window into the brain. 
And why does it do that? The skin and the brain embryologically come from the same germ layer. And what we discovered quite, again, serendipitously, to use Henning's word, um, was that stimulate, uh, um, stroking the skin produces a compound called FGF2. FGF2 crosses into the brain and changes the brain. So let's go back and say, so what would you do if you were trying to improve uh, the outcomes of children who had these experiences they didn't actually experience, okay? And that is, let's start with tactile stimulation. Tactile stimulation in utero, so the mum's massage. Tactile stimulation of the babies. If you look at tactile stimulation, for example, in mums who are um, depressed, uh, having a depressed mum has really profound impact on the development of the baby. If the mum gives the baby a lot of tactile stimulation, or some another caregiver does, you have a protective effect of, that, of the mum's depressed state. Uh, if we look in, in our animal studies, the changes in the brain related to that tactile stimulation are simply amazing. Mm -hmm. So the, what do we, if you look in South America, there's something called kangaroo care. In many countries, the babies get um, 12 or 14 hours a day skin-to-skin -skin contact with the caregiver because they're in a little papoosie thing. And we don't do anything like that. Um, we should be. We should be engaged in more tactile stimulation. One of the other big things that affects uh, brain development is, is having someone read to you when you're little. Well, when, when you're reading to little kids, what's happening? They're sitting on your lap. Your arm might be around. There's tactile stimulation. There's also the, the auditory stimulation. So tactile stimulation is one place to start. <coughs> yeah. okay. We're actually looking at the role of tactile stimulation in um, preventing the onset of autism in children at risk. So the moms are getting the prenatal tactile stimulation and the babies get it too. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Terry Shellington, lots to think about. I'd like to take us back to your comments uh, in your presentation around 13-year-olds and marijuana. Um, I didn't hear you mention alcohol. Uh, I don't know whether that was an oversight. I'm curious about, uh, I'm curious about the, the negative effects that marijuana has, but also uh, is there a reason why you didn't mention alcohol, and is there a substantial difference between the effect of alcohol on the developing brain and uh, marijuana. Yeah, I didn't mention alcohol because alcohol doesn't have those same effects that the um, stimulants and uh, psychoactive drugs like marijuana and, and amphetamines and nicotine do. So is alcohol bad for you? Yeah, but alcohol consumed um, at any age is gonna have similar effects, big effects prenatally, obviously. But afterwards, nothing like the effect of those stimulants and, and THC, marijuana, in those early years, because what they're doing is they're affecting pruning of, of synapses in the brain, and alcohol doesn't seem to do that. It's not changing the, the way that a whole innate process progresses. So what are the outcomes? If you uh, look at the incidence of psychotic episodes, so um, psychotic break or the onset of schizophrenia or bipolar disease in the 20s, which is when you first see it, children who've been exposed to uh, marijuana age 13, 14, 15, have a about 10 times higher incidence. So I can go into why that is, but it, it, it's a genetic thing, and that is, or an epigenetic thing, and that is that um, we have a lot of people who are predisposed to have these disorders, but they don't because the environment protects them. But it turns out that the exposure to the, these drugs somehow blocks that protection, and so we start seeing this later. So that's why it's so important to somehow stop this. Not that we're being prudish, we just want to say, look, uh, you can have marijuana when, when you're 30, have as much as you want, but don't have it when you're 13. 
because it's not the same brain. And we tend not to realize that the brain at different ages as we're developing is a different brain. It's, it's the brain you had when you were 13 is different than the brain you had when you were 15 and different than the brain you had when you were 17. Just think of your behavior at those times, of course it was different. But so alcohol, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that kids should drink, I'm just saying it doesn't have those epigenetic effects. And I don't understand why, but those are the data. This will have to be the last question. Last question, it's actually two. I just wanted to touch, yeah, sorry. I wanted you to talk a little bit about. Um, closer, closer to the mic. Grow three inches. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, just about um, the difference in, in the brain in, in um, early childhood between the sexes, between the boys and the girls, because sometimes I feel like my poor little boys at five, the expectations when they go to kindergarten, it's so hard on them, and I think that there's quite a difference is what I've heard. I, I heard Robin Gibb talk about it once, and the other thing was that we are told again and again in early childhood to be careful where we touch now, and the importance of touch we've seen is so important, but we're worried about, and especially once they get into the school system, right? There's no touching. That's a policy. No mm -hmm. touching, no hugging. And so I wondered if you'd talk on those two things. Well, as for the sex difference, the sex differences are huge. We can see them at birth and um, because males are exposed to testosterone in utero and then just post-birth uh, females aren't. Um, nobody has a problem saying the genitals of males and females are so obviously different. And they're different because the receptors for the gonadal hormones are different. Well, those same things are in the brain. The brains are just as different. And the male brain is about two years behind in development relative to the female brain, and there's lots of uh, wonderful MRI data showing this. So there's a huge sex difference. And there's a woman who's written a book saying this is all hooey. Well, that's just not so. Uh, it's a, there are huge sex differences. Um, the other question I've actually forgotten. I didn't want to answer it. Uh, <laughs> oh, touching, yeah. Yeah, the touching is really important. and. Uh, I understand why the schools have become paranoid about touching, but you know, when you've got a little kid who's not doing well and they're really sad, what's the thing that's going to make them less sad? A hug. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, when I grew up, and it's true of many of us in this room, uh, there was another kind of touching in the schools, and it was this little long thing. That, <laughs> touch uh, that obviously isn't beneficial, but uh, yeah, no, I don't know how to respond to that, except that the touching is critical. Any more? I don't think so. Uh, well, I, um, I'm totally impressed with uh, the presentation and the questions. So please, let's be grateful that we had Professor Dr. Brian Kolb here from the University of Lethbridge and give him a big thank you hand. Thank you.